This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reforms African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of the Reforms African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, how you doing, brother? Man, this is a bittersweet occasion. Uh, the sweet part is we are back on the mic. At the same time, it's bitter because the particular topic that we're talking about today, you know, even though we took a break from recording, the world keeps spinning, crazy stuff keeps happening. So, yeah, it's a mix of both things. Yeah, man, I'm definitely exhausted, I think, not just from a physical standpoint, but mentally and emotionally. Um, The taxing weight of sin and evil that exists particularly within the American social context has worn me down, man. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm a little raw emotionally. And uh, so good luck with whoever listens to this podcast. Hopefully we won't get too, we won't get too much backlash. But um, man, I just want us to be honest about just what's going on and particularly the white supremacy and white nationalism, the alt-right, all these things that are really taking root in our society and we see the the manifestation of them in Charlottesville. So obviously we got to, got to talk about Charlottesville, man. Yeah. Just to recap for folks in Charlottesville, there was a series of rallies by white supremacists and I'm talking the whole nine yards. They were marching at night. They had torches, tiki torches, um, right. And, tiki torches and polos, man. Like, come on. Yeah. Get the, out that's, that's the new face. Um, And so, but they had all kinds of white supremacist iconography from Nazi flags to Confederate flags. And they were there protesting the future removal of a Confederate monument. And of course, as these things tend to do, there were anti-protesters there and uh, things got violent. And so over the course of the weekend, three people lost their lives. Uh, One woman was hit by a terrorist who drove Uh, a car into a crowd of people and she was killed. Her name is Heather. And two police officers were killed in the course of tracking the events that weekend. They were, they were in a helicopter and the helicopter crashed and and both of those officers died. And so our hearts go out to the families of all those affected by this kind of hatred and violence. Mm -hmm. But it's just been, like you said, man, it's, it's tiring. It's exhausting. Fatigue has really just defined me. All this stuff started to go down on a Friday, and the next three days for me, I've just been kind of in this daze of yeah. you know following the events, and and really my my mind has been all over the place. It's been hard to hold down a thought. It's been it's been difficult to focus, and just trying to process all of this is 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 a bit overwhelming. You know, I think that's the most wearying thing is the fact that indirectly we recognize that the ideologies of white supremacy get people killed, but seeing it directly play out, like there's rarely this direct line um, that's publicized to this degree, 
right? So we see these direct lines and they're kind of pushed off to the side because, well, we don't really know if they truly had ties to such and such. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's just highly speculative at that point for a lot of people. But but I think we see clearly like white supremacy gets people killed. And yeah. I think when you feel the weight of that, I think it reminds us that this isn't just in a faraway decade or, or, or century, but this is right now in 2017. And I think it was necessary for a lot of people to bring them to this place of of jarring recognition. But for many people, and for us to a very small degree, I think, because we're newer to the conversation over the past few years, but for us to a smaller degree and for many people to a larger degree, we've known this. Like this isn't this isn't too shocking. And I think it's been interesting to see how people have reacted with shock. Right, right. Well, just a word about that phrase, white supremacy. Um, it makes a lot of folks, particularly white folks, uncomfortable. It kind of shuts down conversation. But much has been made over the events in Charlottesville about calling this white supremacy and not cushioning the blow by just you know using vague generalities. And so I think it's right and appropriate that we call this white supremacy. My one concern about using the term is something that I've seen happen over and over again, because you and I have talked about white supremacy before. This is not new for us in terms of content on this on this podcast or on the website. Um, but finally, it's it's starting to gain some currency within Christian circles, which is new. The problem is it's only happening because of this rally in in Charlottesville where three people killed. And so my concern is that in, in calling it white supremacy for these big overt events uh, of racism, that we would fail to see and to call out white supremacy happening every day all around us. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's not just the, the overt instances. It's not just the instances that make national news headlines. It's the everyday reality of, of a society that is built around whiteness hmm. and elevates whiteness to the subordination of all other people. And that plays out in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of areas, from politics to religion to uh, entertainment, uh, you name it. it. It affects everything. And so I want folks to see white supremacy, not just in Charlottesville over a particular weekend, but white supremacy as the daily status quo in America. Yeah. So you actually talked about this at Rand Network and you had the ability to write two articles in a span of like 24 hours, which you need to transfer that ability over to me and so <laughs> many others who have thoughts, but we just can't put it down as quickly as you do. But so you wrote an article on Rand Network that people can go read. It's entitled 10 Everyday Ways Charlottesville and White Supremacy Are Allowed to Still Happen. And then you wrote another article for this very, very small upstart newspaper entitled The Washington Post, uh, yeah. which is entitled, After Charlottesville, Will White Pastors Finally Take Racism Seriously? Now, so I'm guessing that these articles as well were written with the intent to kind of convey what you just said, which is to not miss the everyday examples and everyday occurrences um, of white supremacy, of, you know, I guess, in tangentially Eurocentricity as well, right? So the fact yeah. that 
that things that come from from Europe or, or Eurocentric are better intrinsically and things that come from other areas of the world would be seen as less than, you know, so it's to communicate this, but it seems like it's to communicate this to to lay Christians or to people who are everyday Christians. Am I reading that right? Yeah, the key in in that article on Rand is is the everyday ways. And so I think it's tempting to look at an event like Charlottesville and see these white supremacists marching and filled with hate in their eyes and captured on 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 photo and say, well, that's not me. I'm not a white supremacist. But, but I think that belies the reality that that we can prop up white supremacy unintentionally. And so I list 10 different things. The, the first thing on there, because it was high on my mind, was was politics and in particular uh, the current president. And we don't have to sort of um, get get off on a tangent about that whole thing. But my only point there is that you and I have talked about this for a year. And during the election and the campaign, we mentioned that, that this man's rhetoric emboldens bigotry. And I think what we have, what, what we see in Charlottesville is an enactment of that. It is a fulfillment of, of taking this man's words to their logical end. Mm. And I'll never forget one of my professors said, language creates the opportunity for action. And that's, this is what's happening with white supremacy right now. You already have this group of people who may be small in number, but they're very vocal and they're very motivated. And now they have someone who they see as their leader, someone who they see uh, as, as encouraging them. You have David Duke, a former Ku Klux Klan leader, saying, uh, we voted for this president and we are here to fulfill his agenda and basically, quote unquote, take back America. So all they needed was a leader in the White House to embolden them. And I think that's what we're seeing. And so I think this connects to everyday Christians, because if we refuse to see our political choices in the context of white supremacy and how that might encourage or discourage white supremacy, then that's one of the everyday ways we can prop it up. Hmm. So you're saying people are pushing back on you saying that what Donald <laughs> Trump has said in the past has contributed to this? Oh, big time, big time. I mean, we've talked about it before, but the biggest backlash we got was when we talked about the election and the podcast immediately uh, following the election in November. And so I think what it gets to is this idea of civil religion, where people are making politics, their lowercase g, God. And what happens is whenever you sort of critique that idol, whenever you critique that that little g, God, uh, people are going to push back with, with a force and a fury of, of worship. And so I think, you know, people who are pushing back want to disconnect their political choices because they may have voted for something like a Supreme Court pick or an abortion stance or something they thought was really, really important politically. And then to criticize the, the man they voted for is somehow a critique on them as well. Mm. And so that's the pushback that I'm seeing. And I'm just saying, look, it doesn't matter if the person in the White House is a Democrat or a Republican, uh, and you can speak well about this, Tyler, but it's about whether that person is is governing well and, and, and leading to the flourishing of the people that he or she has responsibility over. Hmm. Yeah, man. <sighs> Jamar, Jamar, Jamar. <laughs> <laughs> Just say it, man. Let Jamar, it out. Jamar, Jamar, Jamar. Um... I don't I don't I just don't see the need to mince words anymore, man. Um, and I don't see the need to ignore plain realities that sit in front of our face. And, you know, one of those realities is that 
Donald Trump doesn't care about black people. Mm. Um, he doesn't. And if anybody thinks otherwise, they should present evidence. You know, Donald Trump cares about individual black persons and, and sole black issues that can advance his agenda and quest for power. But Donald Trump has never cared about the flourishing of the black community in the American experience. Donald Trump has not proven that. Um, and what we have seen is that, you know, in reality, most of the politicians that we see in our sphere, regardless of political persuasion, most of those politicians don't care about black people either. Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're a liberal or conservative. Most of them are, are, are lip service, giving lip service at best. But, you know, the difference between Donald Trump and most politicians is that most politicians weren't supported by Christians in the way that Donald Trump has been supported by Christians. And so now Christians have to reckon with the reality of this man who is in the White House must be held accountable. What he said in the press conference yesterday, kind of non-threateningly, non-confrontationally speaking to all sides or many sides, whatever that means, that, that type of rhetoric gets people killed. You know, the policies that he espouses, the way he speaks about black people, it gets people. It gets people of color killed. Like, I don't think people understand that. And so it would be irresponsible for us as Christians to ignore what sits plainly in front of our faces. And so Christians have a responsibility to ensure that the leaders that are above them are governing wisely and well according to the commands and dictates of God. That means that every single person should be flourishing. That means every single person should have the opportunity um, if they are doing things in the proper God honoring legislative um, way, um, you know, that is not breaking laws or anything that they should have the opportunity to flourish according to what the scripture outlines. And so rulers are responsible for justice. And That's I don't right. I don't I don't see that in any way, shape or form as it relates to black people. Um, I see it as it relates to individual black persons on his cabinet who make him look good. Um, right. And individual black people that he can point out and draw close to gain and curry favor with the black community um, or favor with other people who would look positively on him trying to curry favor with the black community. But I don't see him caring about black people at all. And so when we see a president who is not willing to speak the words white supremacy, white nationalism, not willing to condemn the alt-right because he knows it's a part of his base. Christians should stand up and say, that is a threat to my brother and sister. That is a threat to the people around me who are part of the family of God, who are people of color. And even the people of color who deny this, they they need protection too. Amen. Know? So yeah. even the people who would support Donald Trump, they need protection too, because in reality, white supremacy doesn't really care who you support. It's coming for you. You know, it's evil. It's a stronghold. And so it's, it's responsible for us as Christians as part of the way of Jesus to speak truth to power and truth to people where necessary. And I think what we're doing right now is I'm hearing a lot about speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Don't try to get vengeance. Don't try to get revenge. And, and we're missing the reality, which is sometimes we just need to speak. We need to speak the truth. Like it, it's, it's not loving if we don't speak the truth. It's not Amen. loving if we don't block the fury yeah. of evil oppressive systems on vulnerable and marginalized people groups that that's not loving like we're not some of us are becoming so moderate that we're mediocre now Ooh. like we we can't speak to this issue and we need to take a stand and we need to speak the truth 
and we're going to be held accountable for that. But, you know, anyway, you know, I want to get into all that, man, because, you know, we play this political game. So it's like, oh, well, what about so and so? What about this? Listen, deal right. with the ruler in office right now. Deal with, right. deal with the president in office right now. And you have to ask yourself, is this president governing according to truth, justice, what is right and beautiful? And what is what is honorable according to um, what God has commended. And we don't see that, man. Like, let's just be honest. Uh-huh. Like, let's be honest about that, man. Like, it makes it so much easier to move forward. And it's not impugning people, but it is saying that as Christians, don't you see that there is a necessity to speak about this? You know, protect your brothers and sisters in Christ. Until then, man, we ain't got, you know, this ain't going to change, man. Man, there's a, you, you just said a lot. There's a ton to unpack. and Probably too just- much. No, it's good stuff, and my mind is just like buzzing right now, because the first thing I thought of is when you talk about speaking the truth in love, and we become so moderate as to be mediocre, I think about the tone policing that comes when we speak out about racism and white supremacy. And of course, there are a lot of white people who tone police us and say you're being too angry or harsh or not loving or whatever, but that's also coming from black people too. Hmm. And so... It's, it's really sort of frustrating to me that, you know, apart from incidents like Charlottesville, we'll be told to tone it down, to uh, speak more about reconciliation, to, um, you know, be more patient with our white brothers and sisters. And, and of course, there's a kernel of truth in all of that. Sure, but at the sure. same time, we recognize the urgency of the issue because we're not surprised by Charlottesville. We're not surprised that white supremacists would, would, would pack guns in wide open and dress in camo. We're not surprised that they would, would have a torch-lit rally around a Confederate monument. We know that's possible, and now we see it in real time happening. And so when we, we decry racism, when we decry white supremacy, we do it because we know what could happen. And yeah. I'll put it this way. I was an educator for for a decade in various capacities. And when I was a new teacher, I would look at veteran teachers and always think they were mean because they would get on their kids, their students for the littlest thing, you know, a pencil out of place or Mm. or not having the homework the first day or whatever. But as I gained more experience as an educator, I started to see the wisdom in this because they knew where it would lead. They knew if they did not speak out about the quote-unquote little things, people would take that as license to do more and more egregious things. And so I think we're seeing that when it, in terms of white supremacy. That, like We talk about language and we talk about speeches and we talk about the words people use because we know that that can lead to dangerous, even lethal action. And so I'm, I'm done with the tone policing, especially from black brothers and sisters who this is going to affect more immediately and more adversely than others. Like, Mm. let's treat the problem as serious as it is, and let's not Mm. police one another because we think we're being too harsh, because to speak the truth, like you said, to speak the truth is not necessarily to to not be loving. To speak the truth can be loving. And so that's what I think we strive to do. We don't always get it right, but, you know, let's not, let's, let's lay off the tone policing now that we've seen charlottesville in real time people people dying you know it's an interesting point that you bring up you see because the the black community and i think even by extension you know some of the modern iterations of what we call the black church um it it has to be really careful about 
catering its message solely to an upper middle class black person. Ooh. All right. Like, so what we're seeing a lot is that when these tragedies occur, more and more uh, people within the black community, as as we experience wealth, and we're, we're adopting this sort of suburban theology you know, oh, that what? caters to the, the wealthiest and the most influential people. And, and it's interesting because that's that's it's almost like it's it's colonization but it but it's slow cook colonization right oh my goodness it's, it's less it, it's less it's less drastic and and it happens over time it's just crock pot it's just colonization in the crock pot and, and so what people are doing over time is we slowly just become anesthetized to the realities that people will face and the more we move outside of the cities and the more we don't interact with people within the cities the more we look down upon them the more we shop at places that aren't within the city i, I don't you know it's just seemed to me to be like this suburbanized view and i think it robs us of the rich theological history and legacy of the black church which is built upon a voice crying out in the wilderness and black people have to remember that that's not black theology like when you when you have a suburbanized theology that caters itself to the wealthiest and most influential, you cannot say you're a part of the history of the people who have espoused black theology. Yeah. And you cannot say that you are part of the black church tradition. You know, and I'm not saying that the black church tradition isn't conservative, it doesn't have diversity of thought. But but what you're missing is the reality that you cannot stand here and say, Oh, okay, well, well, look at so and so, look at look at this person, look at that person, if you're constantly tone policing. And yes. and we're not doing black theology. I think it's important for the black church to remember and the black community to remember that a key part of of us learning and growing and pushing towards justice and reconciliation for all is remembering the the blessings of the black church. And that's a rich, deep theological uh, diversity. It's it's just a broad portfolio. And I think many of us who are in this reform space need to recapture those ideals. Like there's a theologian um, and a preaching a homiletician named Kenyatta Gilbert. And Kenyatta Gilbert talks about the trivocal voice of the preacher. And it's so helpful. He talks okay. about how we have to... What'd you say? I said, okay, come on. Okay, so, yeah, so he talks about... <laughs> okay, don't egg me on. I'm talking about black preaching so I can just go. Be careful. But but so he talks about the the fact that there's there's a trivocal voice of the black preacher. It's it's the the prophetic voice the priestly voice and the sage voice, and that all three are necessary to the preservation of African-American preaching through the next generation. And he said, we tend to neglect one versus the other, depending on our state and station in life. And mm. he talks about how the prophetic voice is obviously speaking truth to power, but is also a, a, um, a superimposing of the commands of God, like, like telling, telling the, the community telling not just the black community, but the powers that be how God expects them to act, right? Like speaking according to the commands of God and that the priestly voice is more of a, a congregational element, like advising people of the yeah. importance of, of self-care and healing and being a part of a broader collective of people. And then the yeah. sage is is the, the reclamation of the history and the rich cultural heritage of our forefathers and the people who will come after us. And so wow. he talks about how those those three that that just rubric of looking at response helps us to kind of see and he talks about this if you're wondering the journey and promise of African American preaching. And he talks about how this this helps us to to craft 
a better, more comprehensive theology. And I, I feel like in these responses, we've we've neglected and narrowed the Christian response to being just, oh, this is gospel-centered. And make no mistake about it, like I believe in the gospel, like I vociferously preach the gospel, right? I believe in it. But I think what we're missing here is we're missing the dynamics. Like there's there's a very fluid dynamic that the black church identifies with and that there's no mutual exclusivity between us preaching justice and preaching virtue. Like we can do both at the same exact time. And that gives us moral credibility because it's according to the gospel. It is according to the, to the way of Jesus. And, and I think so many people are have never been exposed to that and experienced that. And we're doing a disservice. Seminaries are doing a disservice to people when they don't teach them the Say history that. because it speaks to right now. We need that. We need a tri-vocal voice from the church. We don't have that right now. So, I mean, you know, I could I could go on and on about, you know, black preaching, but I think that's just one of the contributions of the black church is this moral credibility and the dynamics, a fluid range of of responses to issues that that don't have to neglect virtue, but can also say, you know, there's a time when the powers that be need to be held accountable and y'all trying to focus on virtue is deflection. Like, let's be honest about the corruption that exists you know, in our governmental structures. Uh, in case y'all didn't know it, Tyler Burns is a preacher uh, from birth. And so you just got a little bit of a taste of it. That was that was so powerful, man. One of the things that I hope does not get lost in this whole thing is we talk about everyday ways that people prop up white supremacy. The, the, the proximate cause for this rally in Charlottesville was the future removal of a Confederate monument. Hmm. That gets me. That's it. Tyler, you and I both live in the Deep South. We pass Confederate iconography and symbolism every, every day. day. Every single day. Our counties are named after Confederate generals. We see Confederate flags. We see statues. We see all kinds of ways that people will ref- are refusing. It is, it is an intentional refusal to let go of the Confederacy and all that it represents, which must include race-based chattel slavery. And please be not confused. The Civil War was fought over the issue of slavery. And yet we have people 150 years later still fighting the Civil War, still fighting for the Confederacy. And here's my thing. There should not be a question left in any municipality any community, any state, that every sign of Confederate celebration should come down. Whether that is the flag, Mm. I'm looking at you, the state of Mississippi. Whether Mm. that is a monument, and there could be countless cities, maybe even in your city as you're listening now. They need to come down. Why? Because they are like lightning rods, just as a lightning rod would attract a lightning bolt. So do these Confederate monuments yes, attract sir. the lightning bolt of white supremacy, yes, and sir. they maintain a lie. They maintain a lie that the way things were in terms of the way society was constructed, constructed which white, with white people on top and black people on the bottom, which, by the way, is still the way society is constructed, was actually better. And that's where that phrase, make America great again, mm. comes from. That's where all this nostalgia for the past and this, this language of reclaiming and taking mm. back 
that's where it comes from. So you want to know why we continue to see these kinds of rallies, why it's so popular, even if it's, quote unquote, a fringe group, which it ain't. Um, it's a refusal to reckon with the past. It's a refusal to let it go. And if we can't, it's repentance. This is what the Bible calls repentance, right? Like you cannot claim to follow Jesus as both Savior and Lord if you're not willing to turn away from or let go of your sins. Mm -hmm. And so as a nation, we are not willing to turn away from, let go of, repent of the sin of racism. And you see the visible manifestations of it in Confederate monuments, flags, and the like. Man, that's powerful, bro. That's so true. Man, whew. You know, it's interesting, um, just kind of as we wrap up, when you're talking about the stakes, like, why is this important? Like, it's not just, like, you brilliantly just elaborated on the reality of of white supremacy in our current society, in this life. But, man, there are eternal consequences for this. Like, I genuinely believe that, you know. And recently I was preaching on the parable of the talents and... You came across Matthew, Matthew 25, 19, and where it says after he divided the, the talents and gave them, you know, five to one servant, three or two to uh, the second servant, and then one to the third servant, mm-hmm. that it says after a long time, the master came back to settle accounts with them. And bro, that, that keeps me up late at night. Like oh, that boy. makes me watch what I say and do. Right. Because the master's going to come back. He's going to take an inventory. He's going to take stock of how you acted and what you said and what you did, even in now. And it, it just reminds me of, of you quoted Dr. King in your Washington Post um, article. And it was it was interesting because it reminded me of that, that phrase in the letter from a Birmingham jail. Something to the effect of when he was talking about the blatant injustices that, that Negroes face and how white churchmen will stand to the side and mouth. Uh, pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities right Mm. like beyond being like a gut punch like a one-two you know from a brilliant man a genius of a writer and thinker if you really sit back and think about it what are we going to offer other than these cliches man like what are we going to offer jesus wow (laughs) like he's going to be like what did you do like your brother told you we told you that this was hurting us. We told you that this was getting our, our sons and daughters killed. We told you that they were coming after us and discriminating. Against. We told you, bro. Like, man, we, we, we told you, we, we pleaded with you to read the books. We pleaded with you just to get on your knees and pray. We pleaded with you to soften your heart. We pleaded with you not to, to, to read the authors that are still talking about how the South wasn't that bad. We pleaded with y'all not to do that. And, and and now what are we what are we gonna offer the cliches like well Jesus don't you know it's it's come on it's a sin problem your blood covers this he's like no nah, man you were not faithful mm. you were not faithful with the opportunity that I gave you you were not faithful with the relationships that I gave you you did not love your brother and sister as if I were them and man you know that keeps me up late at night man these trip these these. These cliches, man, these generalities, these little, I'm not taking them no more, man. Like, we got to stop. Like, black Christians have to stop letting people just say whatever to us. And we nodding along. No, 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 no. It's not. No, you need to say more than that. Because we've been saying that for decades and white supremacy still popping. 
Wow. Sin still still wrecking. It's a stronghold. And we need to treat it as such, man. You know, we need to fast and we need to pray and do everything spiritual that we can. And then, yo, y'all pick up these books. If you if you are remedial on race in 2017, that's a stewardship issue. You being a bad steward. If you said if you sitting up here and talking only when there's tragedies, but oh. then you're not reading the books, you're not doing the education. That's that's bad stewardship, man. Like we need to call that what it is. You're this willful ignorance. Willful, willful ignorance. It, it is, and you're complicit in that. So we just we, we as black Christians, I feel like, need to stand up and say, "Listen, we're not gonna take no more of these these cliches. And, we not gonna we not gonna sit on panels with people who taking any more of these cliches. We're yes. not gonna sit up here and allow people to say reckless stuff to us in public. We're not gonna let them them." hide in our inbox and then not say something in their Sunday morning services. It don't work like that no more, man. You know, we're anyway, not... we need to cut this off, man. Like, yo, bro, we need to cut this off, man. Pastor, let me just get one more word in. Uh, oh, man, I need to stop talking, bro. Look, 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 you, you saying a word though. And, and, um, I think it was Michelle Higgins said black lives matter more than the schedule. So it's all right. Ooh. It's all right. <laughs> um, you bring up so, so many good points. And you mentioned that that Washington Post article I wrote. It was it was addressed specifically to white pastors, but I think it can be the white church in general, which, by the way, the white church is an invention, invention of white people. Black people didn't create that. And so we need to we need to call it what it is and place proportionate responsibility where it belongs. White people, white Christians bear a heck of a lot of responsibility for dismantling white supremacy, because historically, white Christians have helped construct white supremacy. Yes, sir. And if you want to hear more about that, listen to our bonus podcast on the fierce urgency of now. I walk through some of the history. You'll see what I mean. It's brilliant, man. Yo, you did your thing, bro. Hey, man, look, it's all the we got receipts. That's all I'm saying. And so in light of that, white churches and white Christian leaders in particular need to be about the costly pursuit of racial justice and reconciliation. And what I mean by costly is this, right? Like, I think even in the past five or six years, of you, as you and I have done, ran and passed the mic, we've seen white pastors be more vocal about race. And that's good. Like on social media or things like that. They've even done sermons, panels, had guest preachers. Oh, absolutely. That, that's good. Yeah. And I acknowledge that. And, and so and I think many people who listen to this podcast are those folks. But here's the thing. What has it cost you? Hmm. I mean, beyond maybe the, the angry church member here and there, here's 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 the thing. Are you willing to lose church members over this? And have you? Are you willing to lose your job over this? Hmm. Uh, because black people have lost their jobs over speaking about racism and injustice. Um, are you willing to lose your fortunes, your, 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 your financial security? Are you willing to put your family in harm's risk because you're pursuing justice? Because guess what? These black families who enrolled their little bitty children in all white schools to integrate them and with the hopes that their child might receive an excellent education just like the white children were. They put their families in the in harm's way for the sake of justice. Will you do the same? And so I just don't want to hear, oh, well, I have spoken out about this. I have spoken out about that. Here's the, here's the fact of the matter. 
those folks we saw marching in Charlottesville are also going to be sitting in the pews every Sunday. Correct. Church discipline, homeboy. Have we treated racism truly as a sin? Have we disciplined it? Have we called it out? Have we created? Look, here's the reality, I think. I don't think you're going to convince many of those marchers that, that attended the, the, the rally in Charlottesville that racism is wrong. I think they are so steeped in that stronghold. It's, 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 it's very, very slim chance that they're going to radically change. Now, the gospel can do it. I believe it, we, it, can, be ha- it can happen through the power of the Spirit. But, the rea- but, but, but I think what's, what's incumbent upon white Christians is to create such an atmosphere in their churches and in their organizations that those folks would at least feel a sense of shame for their beliefs, would at least feel that those are beliefs that they can not air publicly and get away with it. And that's what's killer when we can have folks in our congregations, and I'm talking about majority white congregations, that can hold these these, uh, racially atavistic white supremacist beliefs and people just kind of brush it off. Oh, that person's old or oh, that person's fringe. No, that stuff leads to death. Yeah. And we have got to kill that ideology before it kills other people. And so that's why I wrote that post. And it's not saying that nobody's saying anything is that until it is costly, until this is a, a lifestyle and not just a momentary uh, topic then we're going to continue to deal with the issue of white supremacy, not only in American society, but in the church as well. Yeah, but you find out what you're doing in in times of peace when there's tragedy. And a lot of people only speak about this stuff in tragedy. Yeah. Like they only speak about this stuff when they're forced to. And I think it goes a long way whenever there's not a tragedy, when there's not some horrendous police shooting that we can all clearly see should be a conviction. You know, when when we when we don't see a Charlottesville, you know, when we don't see a Trayvon Martin, when people speak then in peacetime, then, you know, they're getting it. But when they just speak a tra- tragedy, like that's yeah. not a proactive response. That's a reactive response. And the church must do better, man. So that includes all of us. That includes um, those of us who are in majority spaces as well. We need to speak. And uh, those of us who are in black churches, you know, we need to hold the line. And we don't need to to slow cook, colonize our, our theology, man. Done, done with that. No more suburban theology, man. Let's let's preach the gospel according to the times in which God has placed us in, remembering that Jesus is Lord, and He'll come back to give an account, man. And, we, and He'll come back, and we're going to give an account um, to Him. And uh, the King's going to come back and and settle everything. So let's remember that, man. We got to stop talking, bro. Word. We will continue this discussion. Um... Y'all pray, pray for this nation, uh, pray for civil rights activists, because I do believe we're in the civil rights movement Please, of sir. our day. And so um, send us your comments. Let us know what you're thinking. We have a private Pastor Mike Facebook group. You can request to join. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us 
in praying for the unity of God's people.